one misconception you may hear is that, you know, pig farmers are stuck in the past, but that's definitely not the case. Both our pork associations and our pig farmers are moving forward every day. Hello, and welcome to the From Urban to Ag podcast. I am so glad to have you here. The goal of this podcast is to answer questions consumers have about agriculture, food, environmental sciences, and natural resources, connect listeners to experts within these industries who can provide science-based information and answers, and lastly, to share the narrative of agriculture because it is broad and diverse and intriguing. In these podcast episodes, you can expect to learn about several different industries and disciplines such as swine production, agricultural communication, dairy production, agribusiness, and so much more. Thank you for listening. Now on to the episode. Hello, listeners. Jacqueline here. And first and foremost, I have to say thank you. Thank you so, so much for those of you who are following along and listening, and I really appreciate all the positive feedback I've been getting so far. So if you are enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to like us on your favorite podcasting app, rate us, subscribe, and importantly, share it with your friends, anyone you think could benefit from learning a little bit more about agriculture, food, environmental sciences, and natural resources, or someone you think that might have a great question or topic to be covered on this podcast. Now, what are we talking about today? We have a very special topic today and special because I actually got a request for it through the From Urban to Ag Instagram account. Someone told me that they don't know a lot about pigs and I'm going to be honest, I don't know a lot about swine production either. So I was more than happy to learn about it and now share all this information that I have with you. So speaking with us today, we have Miss Morgan Wonderly. She just completed her master's at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, go Mustangs. So she's going to be giving us an overview of what it means to work in the swine industry and everything that goes into pork production. And at the end, we even have some questions from our online audiences. Now let's get started and learn some more about swine production. First of all, thank you very much for your time and speaking with us today. And can you just start off by kind of introducing yourself, giving a little bit of your background and how you got started in your current industry? Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. So I was born and raised in Bakersfield, California. However, I don't have your typical swine industry background. I actually grew up raising boar goats or market goats in our local county fair. So my parents actually met in 4-H and so they got me started at a super young age. Uh, but apparently I've had an affinity for pigs before I even knew it. I used to ask my mom to go to the pig barn every year during the fair uh, because apparently I like the smell. So uh, not your typical <laughs> background at all, uh, but again, really happy to talk to you today about one of my favorite subjects. So after high school, I attended Bakersfield College, where I started studying animal science under Mr. Billy Barnes. And after getting my associate degree in animal science, I transferred to Cal Poly in 2016. So coming to Cal Poly was a huge decision for me to get away from home. Um, but decided to get my bachelor's in animal science. And so as animal science students, we have lab aspects in all of our classes. And so the first lab I ever had was at the Cal Poly Swine Unit. And I automatically fell in love uh, having lab with those pigs and being able to interact with them uh, right off the bat in my first year was a super awesome experience that I had. And so the next year, my senior year, 
a manager position actually opened up. And so I had the opportunity to live on the farm. So you basically live, breathe, you know, and everything pig farming. And so I definitely uh, immersed myself right off the back. You know, you can go out and feed the pigs in your pajamas or, you know, Pharaoh pigs out in your pajamas, but it was a super awesome experience. And I graduated that spring. And then that summer I actually had the opportunity to live in Iowa. And Iowa is known as kind of a state in the hog belt or in the corn belt. It's where all the pigs are. And so I had the chance to intern for the National Pork Board, which was an awesome experience, um, and came back and decided to obtain my master's degree in animal science. Wanted to further my education after that summer and really kind of dive into the industry more. And so I'm currently getting my master's degree in animal science, specializing in meat science. And so this last summer, I had another internship. I had the chance to live in Illinois, which is right next door to Iowa. Uh, again, more pigs. I had the chance to live with the family. Nathan Ray is his name. Um, and had the chance to work on their show pig operation. So it was really fun to get immersed on a farm that wasn't in California, right? Totally different aspects to it. And now I'm hoping to defend my thesis next month and graduate and then hopefully stay full time here at Cal Poly and teach swine classes and also run the pig farm here. Congratulations on being so close to being done with your program. Um, I guess for anyone listening, how I met Morgan, more or less, we, I knew who you were because we were both at Cal Poly at the same time, but we both went to um, <laughs> a conference, AAAE conference in our master's. So that's how we met. And um, thank you for telling us a little bit about that. But before we get into some more of the questions, when we were scheduling this podcast interview, we had to be flexible because Morgan said that there was a sow having piglets. So Morgan, before we go any further, I feel like you have to tell us a little bit about your experience this morning with um, the circle of life and pigs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically, um, this week we've been farrowing. So farrowing is simply the process of giving birth for pigs. And so some people call it pigging, but we just call it farrowing. Uh, so basically a sow named Hippo, um, we just named her Hippo. She's around three years old. It's her third time giving birth. And she was due yesterday and she had milk last night. So basically uh, we bring in sows three days before they're due into a place called the farrowing house. And this farrowing house is completely sanitized, completely clean. Um, and we basically just wait for them to have their piglets. So she's been in there the last two days. And we've been keeping a really close eye on her. And usually whenever we find that they have milk present um, in their underline or in their um, breast tissue, we know that they're going to have piglets within 24 hours. So last night we were kind of on call watching her really closely. Uh, and this morning she started having piglets. And so she has six so far. Um, and I'm going to guess she's around halfway done, but we're super excited. Fairwing's definitely my favorite part of the industry. Um, so she has six healthy babies so far. So far? Yeah. I am <laughs> Oh my goodness. That would lead me into the next natural question of how many piglets does a, does a sow usually have at one time? My goodness. Yeah, that's an awesome question. So pigs are very, very prolific animals. We average here at Cal Poly around eight to nine piglets per sow. Uh, but in the commercial industry, they're going to average 13 to 14. So depending on your operation, uh, there was actually a new record set, I believe, in Illinois last month for 22 piglets. Oh, my God. From one single sow. That is crazy. What other animal has that many? That's crazy. I know. I don't know. 
Okay. Okay. Sorry. Moving on. Just like I said, the first kind of questions I like to do are just kind of giving like an overview of the industry in itself and answering some like basic questions. So to you, what is the most rewarding part about working in your industry? Yeah. In the swine industry, I think the most rewarding part, I think there's kind of two ends. The first would be the piglet part aspect of it. I love bringing new life into the world. Making sure those piglets are cared for right off the bat is something that not only I care about, uh, but pig farmers everywhere care about. And so that's something that I hold really near and dear to my heart would be, you know, it's just rewarding bringing that new life into the world. Uh, another aspect that's really rewarding is just meeting all the people within the industry. You know, I didn't necessarily grow up in the swine industry, uh, but just having a passion for it, you know, they, they hug you with open arms. And so meeting all these amazing people through the industry, I've never met a pig farmer that doesn't care about their animals, you know, or doesn't care about people as a whole. And so the people in this industry, you know, they always say, even in agriculture, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So making those connections have definitely uh, gotten me to where I am today. Okay. And on the flip side of that same coin, what are some of the challenges or most challenging part about working in the swine industry right now? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So similar to all of the agriculture industry uh, from both a health standpoint, you know, or kind of a non-medical standpoint as well, we're always going to face challenges. I'd say right now, um, from a health standpoint, the biggest challenge for the swine industry is African swine fever. And so it's kind of been off the radar now with everything happening with COVID. Uh, but African swine fever, it's important to know it is not transmittable to humans. It's simply a pig-to-pig -pig disease. Uh, but it originated in China and has spread like wildfire. And so thankfully, it's not in the U.S. as of now. Uh, but it's definitely, I'd say, a threat to our pork industry. Um, they've estimated that we would lose billions of dollars if it does come to the U.S. And so that's something that pig farmers always have to have in the back of their mind. Um, so we focus completely on, you know, making sure that it, it doesn't get here. And so that's from kind of a health standpoint, a challenge that we face. From a more non-medical standpoint, I think all of agriculture always has to focus on labor, right? Making sure that next generation is here to fill the boots of the past generation. Uh, that's something that we really fight is making sure we're going to have the labor for the next couple of years to take care of all the pigs that we have in the United States. Um, and then also trade, right? There's a lot of politics within trade, but making sure those trade markets are staying open. We export about 27% of our pork outside the U.S. And so making sure that, you know, our supply is kept up with demand and so on and so forth is really, really important. Wow. Did not know we exported that much. And I definitely have never heard of African swine fever, but I will now have to go and do some homework on that. What is, in your opinion, like what is one misconception that people might have about the swine industry? Yeah, I think, you know, similar to agriculture, there's probably a lot. One thing that I like to always tell people about uh, one misconception you may hear is that you know pig farmers are stuck in the past or they don't you know they're not keeping up with technology they're kind of set in their old ways right you can't teach an old dog new tricks uh, but that's definitely not the case both our pork associations and our pig farmers are moving forward every day you know whether that's from a marketing standpoint the national pork board actually has a new partner um, in famebit so famebit's owned by google and Google actually, they partner with influencers to promote pork as a product. So it's actually really cool. Uh, there's an episode called Binging with Babish, and it actually went pretty vi viral. It was a collaboration they did, and he cooked pork um, to, you know, both a wholesome and nutritional standpoint, right? Just showing that pork as a product is very, very healthy. 
Um, another thing, talking about technology, right? So pig farmers, they have video cameras on their farm. They have 100% temperature controlled barns. They can set it from their phone. They don't even have to go in the barn, right? So I think pig farmers are really stepping up um, through technology. They can even set the temperature on their phone on an app, right? And I think the last thing, um, there's been a lot of research efforts throughout not only the last 50 years, but the last, you know, hundreds of years on on-farm research and marketing insights. Uh, just knowing that the pig, the pork industry is staying up to date with our technology uh, as we learn day to day. Yeah, I definitely, from at least my own experiences and from speaking with people, I think that it's hard to imagine some of the crazy advanced technology that farmers have. So that is definitely something I think is always kind of surprising. And I think you and I have to talk more when you mentioned this thing about Facebook and like the communication <laughs> social media and Al Swine, you and I might need to connect on those, but that is awesome. <laughs> Right now, we're going to be moving into some of the questions we got either from my Facebook group or Instagram polls and things like that. But before we do, can you, you've talked about like pork associations and National Pork Board and things like that. So what do those organizations do for the swine industry? Like what is their role that they play? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So National Pork Board, uh, basically they're responsible for research. They're responsible for promoting pork as a product and they're responsible for education. So education. Uh, research and promotion, I think are their three biggest things. So the pork checkoff is basically a mandatory investment that pork farmers make. And that money goes to pork checkoff or national pork board. And they disperse that through research grants, through education platforms, and through promotion as a product, right? Because at the end of the day, all these pig farmers can make, you know, can have 14 piglets a sow and can gross all this pork, right? But if someone doesn't promote it at the end of the day, I think they could really be at a loss. So the National Pork Board uh, promotion, education, and uh, making sure that on the farm research is done are their biggest things. So that's one organization is the National Pork Board or the Pork Checkoff. Another organization is the National Pork Producers Council. So it's uh, the acronym's NPPC. And they're responsible for everything considered legislative. So I kind of think of them as our voice for pig farmers on the hill. So they're based in Washington, D.C. Kind of makes sense, right? Uh, and they are responsible for all the legislative aspects. They make sure that pig farmers' voices are being heard, right? Whether that's for Secretary of Ag or whether that's through maybe your local state organization. So there's National Pork Board, National Pork Producers Council, and then there are local state organizations. So not every state has a pork association. Uh, California has one. There's obviously a lot of the states in the Midwest. I believe even Florida has one. Uh, but again, these pork associations do everything from a state level. So they partner with the National Pork Board and get verbiage on promotion and research and education. Uh, but also they're responsible for letting their voice out at the, na at the state level to their legislatures um, and governors and things like that. Very interesting. Thank you for, for clarifying that. I think sometimes it's for people in ag or in agcom and things like that, sometimes it's you don't realize how many different organizations you have the opportunity to partner with and reach out to and network with. So, and these are just for one industry within agriculture as a whole. So thank you for going into that. And I have another question for you. I keep, I keep getting more. This is my last one. And then we'll move into our <laughs> online questions. Where? Um, but so you mentioned research. You're finishing your thesis. What has your research slash thesis been in? Yeah, so my research, actually, I'm lucky enough to do it here at the Cal Poly's Meat Processing Center. So my research focuses on meat science, but it's definitely on the pork side of things. So if we think about from a consumer aspect, if you're at the store, 
buying hot dogs. You're looking at the shelf. Um, hot dogs aren't known for being the most healthiest product, right? Maybe processed pork products as a whole, whether it's hot dogs or sausages. Uh, they have pretty high fat contents. And those high fat contents definitely uh, get some negative publicity, right? Or they're known for causing negative health effects. But if you look on the shelf, there may be turkey dogs, right? There may be beef franks, uh, but there's no really low fat option for pork. And so we are hoping, uh, we actually did it through our research, we have created a low fat pork hot dog or protein gel. Um, so basically, the low-fat pork hot dog is made by implementing new technology. So we don't really change ingredients too much. Um, we basically implement a new technology, which all it is is we are sub-zero chopping this meat batter. So basically chopping it up like you would normally, uh, just in a really cold temperature. And it actually, I don't want to get too sciencey on you, but it flips the proteins um, and makes it, and basically induces a fat-like creaminess. So at the end of the day, we're making these products with the same kind of mouthfeel and flavor as it would be if there was a, a higher amount of fat in it, uh, but there's not because of this new technology. So um, definitely excited about that and uh, could definitely be a huge path for the future. That is really interesting. And I think you did a really good job of simplifying what could have been a very sciencey explanation, but that's <laughs> really interesting. Congrats. That's such a cool topic to be working on. Thank you. Yeah, it's really exciting. <laughs> good, good. Okay. As promised, I am now moving into online questions. I will, I will withhold my own for, for a little while. So we have, we got a lot of questions from Instagram and Facebook. So I'm kind of going to kind of order them more as like foundational knowledge and moving up into some of the more specific, possibly more complex questions, if that's okay. We have talked about how many piglets a pig can have, which I was shocked about. So kind of going with the life cycle and the nature of a pig in general, how big is a pig and how long do they live? Depending on the breed of the pig, uh, kind of plays into size a little bit. So basically, um, sows are going to get a lot bigger um, if they're around for a longer time. So if we think about the lifetime of a sow, maybe on a pig farm, um, as far as longevity goes or productivity goes, as long as that sow is being productive in the herd, um, she's going to be bred and then she's going to have piglets, right? And that's going to be considered productive. So sows can get upwards towards 700 pounds, um, which is huge, right? And, uh, boars, so a male pig, right, can get even bigger. As far as longevity goes, I'd say the life cycle of a pig on a commercial farm or maybe on a bigger farm. Uh, would be maybe four to five years for a sow um, and maybe a little less for a boar. And that's simply because trends are always changing, right? Maybe one boar that we used in 2018 was awesome, right? And had really awesome traits and had really awesome offspring. But the next year, maybe we're using different things. And so we bring a new boar in uh, with different quality or different genetics. And so uh, pigs can get really, really big. Um, and as far as the life cycle goes, as long as they're being productive, we'll keep them in the herd. That's insane. That is a big animal. I think some of the people listening to this podcast are probably, hopefully, similar to me. And like, you know, the point is to, you know, educate people that probably haven't. I hadn't seen a pig until my fourth year at Cal Poly. The only pigs I had seen, and hopefully I'm, I am not the only one in the world. <laughs> no, I'm not. I can't. But we're the little like miniature baby ones at the county fair that they race in a circle for an Oreo. Like that was the only <laughs> pig I had seen ever. Yes. <laughs> 700 pounds, it, it's hard to imagine unless it's standing in front of you. So that is insane. That is yes, insane. it's nuts. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so talking about breeding, you mentioned trends. Am I to assume, or the question was, are pigs bred like cows? So is it artificial insemination and you're using, like, is that why you meant trends through different boars and whatnot? Yeah, exactly. So in the swine industry, for the most part, uh, simply for efficiency and a few other reasons, artificial insemination is used. So here at Cal Poly, we're a smaller operation, but we do all AI. Um, and again, that's so we can get amazing genetics, right? I could get semen shipped from Iowa. Um, I could get it shipped from China or Canada and use it on my farm. Uh, another reason is efficiency, right? So we do have boars on campus that I can collect the semen from and extend it. And what I mean by extend is in the swine industry, we usually don't freeze semen. So it's a little different than the cattle or sheep industry. We use all fresh semen. And so we don't freeze it. So it's a lot bigger volume. And basically, I can extend that semen and breed, you know, six to seven sows with one collection versus letting him naturally breed maybe two or three sows a week. And so efficiency uh, is definitely one thing that we also play into. But again, those trends are really, really important because, like I said, one boar that's amazing and has awesome offspring one year, uh, maybe priorities shift and you need to change boars. And so artificial insemination is an easy way to do that. Interesting. Good. I mean, these are all these are all new to me. I figured by the way you were talking, the verbiage you were using, I figured it had to be somewhat similar. Um, but that's good to know. The next question from one of our online friends was, what do pigs actually eat? Yeah, that's a great question. So for the most part, um, pigs are omnivores. So they can eat meat, right? They can eat plants. Um, however, for the most part, they're going to eat a diet of soybeans and corn. And so from a protein standpoint, right, we start them out usually when they're young on around a 20, 21% protein. And as they grow, they don't need as much, right? So we're going to kind of lower the protein as they grow within that feed. Um, but usually it's just a pellet or a mash, a mixture of soybean, corn, right? Maybe some whey or lactose for those baby pigs um, and other essential vitamins and nutrients that they need. And it kind of differs from a show pig aspect, right? And those are the pigs that you'll see maybe shown at your county fair that will eventually go into the food chain uh, versus your commercial pigs that are on a farm like Smithfield Farms that go directly into the food chain. So diets are a little different, but at the end of the day, um, they all have the same base. I, I don't know if you can see me, but I'm like, t I'm trying hard not to take notes right now because I'm like, all oh, this is so new. I feel like I should be taking notes of like, this is how much they eat, all these different things. But I'm just, if you see me writing, I'm like writing down questions because this is, this is great. Um, no worries. So moving into more questions. Do pigs spend their entire lives on one farm? And can you kind of explain, this is kind of a long question, but can you explain yeah. like the different stages of life, where they move? Is it all on the same farm? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I'll kind of play it on a Cal Poly's swine unit, maybe or like a smaller operation, and then compare it to a bigger operation. So smaller operations, for the most part, are what we call pharaoh to finish operations. And what that means, again, pharaoh is the process of giving birth. And finish would just mean you're finishing out that pig to market weight, right? So around to 280 pounds. So pharaoh to finish means that that pig is going to stay on the same site. Maybe not within the same barn, but within the same site. So we have our farrowing barn about 50 feet away from our nursery. So the piglets go from the farrowing barn to the nursery. They're going to grow in the nursery. It's a temperature-controlled barn. Then they're going to be moved into the grower finisher. And that grower finisher barn is just where they are going to be grown to market weight. And so on a bigger level or, or on a commercial farm, maybe, again, I'll just use the example of maybe Smithfield or Seaboard, uh, the, all of those barns are going to be on different sites. 
So those pigs basically, uh, it would be a farrowing or a sow unit. So all the sows would farrow at one site. And then you would load those piglets up on a truck when they're around three to four weeks old. And they would truck them to the next site, which is around 20 to 30 miles away. So they're pretty far away. Um, one reason is for biosecurity reasons, right? Any sicknesses that are found at the sow farm, you don't want to necessarily bring those to the nursery or to the grower finisher. And so once they get to the nursery, they'll stay there around, you know, a couple of weeks, maybe eight to 16 weeks, and then they will go to the finisher. And that finisher, again, is where they grow uh, to market weight. But again, that's probably another 20 to, 20 to 30 miles away. So smaller operations, usually everything's on one site. But bigger operations will have farms miles and miles away. That makes sense. Yeah. You decide which question to go next. But I guess my question is, you've mentioned it a little bit. And I know that like, especially for piglets, it's a very sanitary environment. They have a very specific, clean environment. And I feel like not all other production animals follow this like as strict guidelines as I've heard like that piglets do. So why is it different? And like, why are there so many guide guidelines, I guess? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So one thing I always tie that back to uh, is not a lot of people know that on a commercial sow farm, you actually shower in. So you physically take a shower. Um, you don't take any clothes that have been in the outside world into the barn. You get everything. I'm talking undergarments. I'm talking hair ties. Wow. Uh, new clothes, you physically shower into that facility. And again, that's for biosecurity reasons. So we're not bringing anything from the outside world into the farm. And so pigs, we, we really, you know, pride ourselves on that, making sure that facilities are clean because it's really, really easy. Uh, pigs, when they're first born, have like no immune system, right? They receive some antibodies from mom, from colostrum. Uh, but for the most part, they're so tiny and they have really no defense. And so making sure that we're showering in not only at the farrowing barn, we even do it at nurseries and finishers and so on and so forth. And so showering in and showering out is a huge aspect of biosecurity. Um, at smaller farms like us, we basically have foot baths. And so we walk through maybe a disinfectant solution or a disinfectant mat from barn to barn. Again, just so we're not spreading a disease from life cycle to life cycle. So it's definitely, I would agree, right? Not many people know that you have to take a shower uh, before you get in a pig barn. I mean, you wash your hair and everything. So um, it's definitely an important aspect that we pride ourselves on. Once again, my only background to really compare to is dairy because that's what I studied. And so for calves, like like you said, they're not born with a strong immune system. The colostrum, which is like the first, the first milk that the mom produces, gives them some antibodies, but is it just that pigs have a, just definitely a more compromised immune system for longer compared to other animals or just what makes it so different? Yeah, I would say just the disease risk um, from pigs to humans. I mean, obviously we can contract diseases from them, right? And they can contract diseases to us. Um, but another reason is just pig to pig disease. So I would say, yeah, because of that lower immune system, but also pigs are just different in the fact that they have systems that are very similar to ours. And so we all have heard of the swine flu, right? That can be transferred to humans, from humans uh, to pigs. And so making sure that not only you're clean, but the pigs are clean um, is very, very important. That's a great question. That's a good point. I didn't really think about that, but that's good to know. That's good to know. So you mentioned kind of going through the phases, farrowing, we've brought up a lot. So one of the questions we had gotten was, is there a difference between farrowing crates and gestation crates? And can you tell us what both of those are? Yes, that is an amazing question. I think that's something um, that a lot of people, maybe that would be considered a misconception of our industry. So just some background. So gestation crates, if we think of the word gestation, simply means pregnancy, right? So the pregnancy of the pig is three months 
three weeks and three days. So it's, I always really easy to remember, right? It's like a little song, three, three, three. Um, but basically that sow or that guilt, a first time mom, uh, would stay in the crate for her entire gestation. And so again, it'd be around four months, right? A farrowing crate is where that sour guilt is put when she's going to farrow. So that's three days before they're due to have piglets. So from a gestation crate standpoint, uh, there's pros and cons to them and to group housing. So again, it's just how you house that sow when she's in gestation. One pro of gestation crates, the reason I think they're pretty unique is because I can provide individual sow care on a sow to sow basis, right? I can make sure she's not getting in fights and compromising her health, right? I can make sure she gets fed exactly four to five pounds, maybe less, maybe more if she's skinny or over conditioned. Um, and then there's group housing. So group housing would just mean that the sows are grouped together. And so we have group housing here at the Cal Poly Swine Unit simply because gestation crates are not allowed in California. So Prop 2 was passed a couple years ago, um, and they outlawed the use of gestation crates. Again, I think there's many pros and cons depending on your operation. Um, but one thing about group housing that's hard is, again, we can't really provide that individual sow care because if I maybe put 20 pounds of feed in the pen and there are five pigs, there might be a dominant female in that pen, right? Pigs are definitely social animals. And they definitely have a social hierarchy to their herd. So they're going to be alpha females. They're going to be more submissive females. Um, so I think those gestation stalls do a great job of making sure, A, that the sow is safe, right? She's not getting any, any fights, you know, compared to hierarchies. And B, that she can get the individual care she needs. Um, so farrowing crates, on the other hand, again, these crates are the ones that you may see with finger sides on them. So the piglets can access the mom's underline. When she lays down sideways, the piglets can nurse. And so these farrowing crates, the reason for them, uh, piglet mortality, or the reason we lose piglets in the, in, the, in the industry, is usually due to crushing from mom. Obviously, she doesn't mean to do it, right? She's a 700-pound animal. She's got 10, two little pound piglets running around her. Um, so these farrowing crates are simply built to slow the sow down when she lays down. So she can't just flop over like a pancake, right? Obviously, she's a much bigger animal. Um, so these farrowing crates are usually built with a feeder at the front. They have access to free feed in the farrowing barn. They have a lick sit or a water spigot they can drink out of. Um, but again, those farrowing crates are simply built for when the sow is farrowing. So she stays in there with the piglets for 21 days and then is put back either into a gestation stall um, or into group housing, depending on the operation. But that's a great question. No, and that's a, that's a, that's a great point. I was just watching, I follow a couple different, ag accounts on social media, which I'm sure is not hard to believe, but someone just had piglets and one of the piglets they had to doctor it because the mom doesn't mean to, but she must've got him with a hoof and it had a cut on its back. And it's just different things like that. You don't think of when you're kind of considering your management options. So for just to clarify, I'm assuming gestation crates were probably removed just because maybe I'm, I'm wondering, is it the size of them? How big are they? What, what do you think were, was the main reason that people in California opted out of them? Um, I think in California, our operations are a little different, right? In California, as far as sow numbers goes, Iowa and the Midwest has, has about a million sows, right? In California, we have around 5,000 heads. So I think, number one, our farm sizes are a lot smaller. Uh, number two, I think it was a consumer decision as well, right? I think at the end of the day, it's as pig farmers, we're ignoring, ignoring our consumers. I think it's definitely uh, not the right play, right? Obviously, they're the one buying our products at the end of the day. And so I think maybe for sow comfort or for sow well-being, um, some 
people higher up thought that maybe removing gestation crates would be the right idea. Again, I see pros and cons to both, uh, depending on your operation, but I think size could be a factor, right? If that sow maybe doesn't have enough room in her gestation crate. Um, but I think one thing that's important to remember is keeping them in gestation crates would only be when they're in gestation, right? So when they're pregnant. Um, but another thing to bring about farrowing crates too is on the other side of things, you mentioned that piglet might've got hurt by mom, right? So if somebody's picking it up to doctoring it, to doctor that little piglet, if mama sow wasn't in a crate, uh, sows are very aggressive if you mess with their young, right? They're very protective mamas. Um, and so farrowing crates also allow us to be protected from the sow um, as caretakers, right? So mama pig doesn't bite your arm off when you're trying to just give her piglet some medicine. So that's another thing that I always think about. That's another very good point that I hadn't like initially thought about. But yeah, once again, someone that hasn't, I have, I've worked with other animals and that's, I don't know why I didn't automatically assume that that translate over, but it's true, especially <laughs> most new moms are probably a little potentially defensive and you know that. Okay. Good point. Thank you exactly. for explaining that further. Of course. So these are some of the, what I considered a little bit more specific questions. Why is pork called the other white meat? Yeah, that's an awesome question. And that kind of plays into the swine industry history. So if we think back in the old days or back in the past, I should say, right, uh, the number one basically competition for pork is chicken, right? As of today, pork is the number one consumed meat in the world, but in the U.S. it's chicken. Um, and so chicken, obviously, we love it, right, because from a health standpoint, it's super lean, um, it's good tasting and things like that. And so I think that pork is called the other white meat number one because we're trying to compete with chicken um, in the past. And so by labeling it the other white meat, we can say, you know, it's a lean product. It was a great marketing scheme that really helped us kind of get a kickstart within the grocery store, right? If moms or maybe if whoever's shopping for the house, right, would look for maybe the healthiest product, um, we wanted pork to be right up there with chicken. And so the other white meat is simply a slogan used in the swine industry. Uh, but if you really think about it, uh, pork's not a white meat. Pork's actually a red meat. And so I think it's kind of gotten some kickback, right? Uh, maybe confusing some consumers. But again, I think the purpose of that was to just show that pork is just as lean as chicken. Some cuts of pork are just as lean as chicken and just as healthy for you. And so the marketing slogan, the other white meat, has done a huge service for our industry um, from a marketing standpoint. Okay, you let me know if this question is could get too technical, but what does a meat need to have? Like what differentiates red from white? Um, so white meat versus red meat, uh, I don't know too much about the logistics of it, but basically I know that white meat's usually considered leaner than red meat with a lower fat content. Um, so maybe that would be the reason why the marketing slogan went with the white meat, even though it's considered a red meat. Um, but another thing the National Pork Board has played into is cooking temperature. So they put out a new slogan, um, I think around two or three years ago. They changed, the USDA backed them up on this. They changed the cooking temperature to 145 degrees, internal temperature. You might say, well, that's kind of low because it's a chicken 160. Um, so basically they say cook pork to 145 with a three-minute rest. And they have some verbiage, and I could send you uh, maybe a picture or two of it. They're basically linking pork to beef in that way that so you can have medium rare pork you could have medium pork you could have medium well and you could have well and well done and so basically trying to change the consumer's mindset right from the past because in the past let's think about grandma maybe cooking a pork chop okay 
she probably could get to 180 degrees and say, we've got to kill the worms in the pork, right? Maybe trichinosis. I don't want to get too technical. Um, but in the past, let's think pigs were raised on pasture, right? So worms were of concern. If we look at today, most pigs are raised in barns, right? And so we don't have to worry about those parasites or, you know, those kinds of aspects as well. And so we can cook our pork to a lower temperature. Uh, but again, changing the consumer mindset is a huge thing that they've really stepped forward on, basically um, saying, you know, 145 is how we like our pork to cook and it's perfectly safe to consume uh, 145 with a three-minute rest. So I think changing the consumer's mindset is something that they've really been trying to do. And I think they've been pretty successful. I've seen a lot of marketing come out of it. Um, I've even seen it in our local grocery store. So it's pretty, it's an awesome slogan. And you kind of brought up something. I need to stop asking my own follow-up questions so we can get through our online questions. But I just, I have, this is so interesting. You mentioned how now that pigs are no longer on pasture, you don't have to worry about certain like parasites and things like that. I know for other meats and animal agriculture, there is a push for like grass fed or pasture raised or grazing, all these things. Are you seeing the same trend of consumers wanting pork and swine to be moved to pasture at all? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say there's a huge, uh, it's more of a, a niche market. So in even in the Midwest, you'll see those older operations, maybe they're called heritage pork. Um, and maybe those are your operations that maybe have purebred Durox, right, or purebred Berkshires, and they're really known for their high meat quality. And so I think it's something that maybe they're not pushing towards, uh, but it's definitely seen in those niche markets. So I think pasture-raised pork is definitely um, a pretty cool aspect, right, to say you farrow out sows and dirt lots, right? Um, but obviously brings a whole new side of management to it. Um, but it's definitely something that we've seen some consumers want and others um, like their basic pork chops. So totally depends on the consumer, but I'd say it's definitely a part of the pork industry. Yeah, and that directly leads us back on track to our online questions where someone asked, you mentioned Duroc, did I say it correctly? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the question was, I've seen certified Duroc for more money at the store. Is it worth it? That's an awesome question. So in the swine industry, there are different kinds of breeds, right? They're all pigs, uh, but they're different, different kind of breeds, just like a dog. And so if we think of it from a breed standpoint, there are certain breeds that have awesome maternal characteristics. They're awesome moms. They're going to have more piglets than other breeds. They're going to nurse those piglets better. So those would be our maternal breeds. Then we have our more terminal breeds. And those are going to be our Durox, our Berkshires, and our Poland Chinas, and so on and so forth. And so those breeds are going to really add meat quality to their offspring. So what I mean by meat quality is they're going to add more marbling, which is just fat, right? And fat equals flavor in the meat world. And so those pork chops maybe will be more tender. They'll have more juiciness, uh, more flavor, right? And so some people are diehard Duroc fans, right? And they'll only eat Duroc pork. Some people are diehard Berkshire fans, right? And they're only eat Berkshire pork. Uh, but those two Types of meat, I think, are, are another example of a niche market, making sure um, that they're only, you know, purebred animals. Um, but I'd say it depends on the consumer, right? I think that if you're used to your regular pork chop, um, it might be worth it to try the Duroc pork chop. Um, I know a lot of people call Berkshire meat Berkshire gold. And that, again, simply is because the high fat content in those pork chops or those pork products that make it so amazing. So I'd say it's definitely uh, worth the extra price. It's kind of like seeing maybe a certain type of beef, right? Like Wagyu beef or something like that. I think, again, the pork industry is trying to 
add new consumer insight on maybe things that are already in consumers' mind in the beef world to the pork industry. Very interesting. I think that kind of covered one of the next questions where they asked, do the different species of pigs have different meat quality, texture, and taste? And I guess your answer would be yes, just because of marbling and different things like that, correct? Yes, exactly. So totally depending on the breed um, would definitely play into the meat quality and flavors and mouthfeel and all that good stuff, for sure. Yeah. So another question we got online was, what part of the pig is bacon from? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So bacon is from the belly of the pig. So the side of that pig. So if you're looking at a side profile, it comes from the side belly. Um, and it's obviously the most popular product, right? You can put bacon on anything. People joke around that I think bacon's the only thing you can't add something to to make it better, right? You add bacon to other things to make them better. <laughs> Whether that's, you know, uh, bacon-wrapped asparagus, right? Bacon-wrapped steak. It's definitely um, kind of the backbone of pork products, I think. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, it's it's very true. Bacon makes everything, bacon and butter make everything better. So shout out to the swine <laughs> and the dairy industry. Um, Completely agree. <laughs> okay, we're down to our last four questions. We're getting through it. Is there any part of a pig we don't use? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so as far as pig processing goes, they're going to use the majority of that pig, um, whether that's for the makeup industry, right, cosmetics, whether that's for the meat industry. Um, there's a guy from Smithfield Foods who actually quoted this one time. He said, we sell everything but the squeal. And so obviously that means that we, you know, we make do with the whole carcass. And so um, the pork industry and the whole meat industry actually does a process called rendering. And rendering is just taking those parts of the carcass that may not be usable for human use and making those things into pet food, into other swine feeds, right? Into medicines like amoxicillin, ampicillin, penicillin, right? Um, and basically utilizing the whole part of the pig. So I believe in the meat industry, there's only about 4% of the carcass um, or the product that we don't use. But for the most part, we try to use every aspect of that pig, right? Whether it's the hooves, making dog treats, the ears making dog treats. Um, again, making those medicines like insulin, right? Insulin comes from pigs. Um, and also, from kind of a medical standpoint, my sister actually is a biomedical engineer, and uh, they take a part of the heart from the pig, and they use it for human transplants. And so they make human heart valves out of pig heart valves. Um, and so her plant down in Irvine actually gets them fresh from the harvesting plant every week um, and transplants them into human um, health attributes. So I think that's something really, really cool. The beef industry does as well, not just honking our horns for support. Um, but I think it's really cool that we utilize the whole carcass. In yeah, the that is, I think that's great. You know, I think a hot topic in agriculture and a lot of things is waste. And I think it's always very interesting to learn all the other places like animal agriculture benefits. That is not just food. Um, Okay, the next question we got from online was, how does, the, how does the nutritional value of pork compare to other protein sources? And I think we just kind of, I'm actually, it's funny, spoiler alert for anyone that's listening to this podcast, I have a dietitian coming on in a few weeks to talk. So maybe we'll save that question Ooh. for them, you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, pork, I will, you know, filter a little bit on that. So pork, um, if we think of a pork tenderloin, actually is leaner than a chicken breast. And so a pork tenderloin has around, I think, 2.97 grams of fat. A chicken breast has 3.03. So it's very close, right? But, but I think pork, 
certain parts of pork are just as lean as chicken and just as healthy as chicken. And some people think it's more flavorful. So um, the pork board has also, you know, partnered with influencers that are fitness junkies or fitness um, influencers. And so partnering with those fitness influencers saying, look, you don't have to eat chicken every day of your life. You know, you can throw a pork chop in there every once in a while. I think that's something that's really um, interesting to know too, that it is, you know, there are healthy parts of the pig, right? We all love bacon, uh, but you can also enjoy parts of the loin that are just as lean as your regular chicken breast would be. And it's all about balance. In my <laughs> In my Amen. opinion, as, as not a nutritionist, it's, it's all about balance. Um, okay, last question, which I think is a really good one, and I'm very interested in hearing the answer. So what are some sustainability, quote unquote, efforts wine producers practice? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So the pork, pork board actually did a study um, a couple years ago, and they basically looked at the pork industry in the last 50 years. And so they've always, right, we've always been uh, environmental stewards, but again, how are they doing that on a day-to-day basis? So they looked in the last 50 years, and they have actually saw um, that pork producers have used 41% less water, they've used 78% less land, and they reduced their carbon footprint by 35%. And, and that's per pound of pork. So obviously those are some big numbers, um, some very impressive numbers, and we all need to be aware, you know, that agriculture can either have a positive effect or a negative effect on the environment, right? And it's totally what you make of it. So obviously uh, I think the biggest aspect of sustainability would be simply using that animal waste um, for fertilizer, right? Obviously hogs are huge animals, right? And they consume a lot, which means they also excrete a lot. And so making sure that you're using that waste um, sustainably and making sure that it's going to good use, I think is something that pig farmers uh, do a very good job of. And embracing that concept of sustainability, I think is something that they don't get the best rap for. But I think that every pig farm that I've talked to, you know, make sure that they're using the fertilizer, maybe not on their own fields, but maybe even, you know, selling it or um, using it for other reasons as well. And then obviously water quality, air quality, making sure that their pig farms, um, are in areas that maybe, you know, being a, being a good neighbor, basically, right. Making sure that we all know pigs aren't the nicest smelling creatures, right. But making sure, um, that you're being good neighbors and good stewards of the air quality or even the water quality, right. Whether that's planting wind breaks, maybe planting trees around your hog farm to maybe, right? Stop the odor from leaking through or coming through. Um, and obviously storing the manure, right? Not just using on fields, but you can't just take it maybe directly from the pig and put it on your field. But whether you're going to store it in a pit um, and cover that pit or whether you're going to use a lagoon, right? A big kind of lake looking thing to put your manure in um, really depends on where you're at in the industry. But I think, again, using those practices really help the pork industry stay sustainable and have a good rep for being sustainable as well. That's funny that you mention it because as you're talking, I live just around the corner from the University of Florida's swine unit and <laughs> you walk by and it's like sometimes <laughs> of the day you're fine and sometimes <laughs> the wind blows one direction and it's, I mean, luckily I'm from ag and yeah. I have very, you know, mellow Anyways, but I they do like as you're talking, they do have a lot of trees surrounding it, and they kind of yeah. keep most of the swine in the back, like further buildings. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's probably from them trying to be a good neighbor to all the apartments. But uh, exactly, we'd be lying if we didn't say they smelled. We'd be completely <laughs> lying, and we would know it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
Hey, but we appreciate that you take the, you take the time and effort to try to, you know, <laughs> mitigate it. So as we are wrapping up, if you could say one last thing about the swine industry and pork to the people listening, what would it be? Yeah, I think that's an awesome question. Thank you for letting me um, answer this one. So I think one thing that I want consumers to know is just how much we care, right? And I wanna, don't want to be cheesy by any means, but I mean, I've never met a pig farmer that doesn't care about their animals, right? Whether that's from a piglet standpoint all the way to market weight, right? I think sometimes farmers as a whole or animal producers get a bad rap for not caring for their animals. And I think that's something uh, that pig farmers really hold near and dear to their heart, right? And I think another thing is, is we're not shy about sharing our story because we can't be, right? So don't be afraid to ask questions and to be involved, whether that's through social media, right? Or whether that's through maybe your local farm bureau and asking the right questions, right? I always say no question is a dumb question. So I appreciate the opportunity uh, to answer your viewers' questions and all those amazing um, insights that they had as well. So that's one thing that I would just add. I could not have said that better. Thank you for taking the time and answering them. And uh, in the future, who knows, if they have any follow-up questions, I might have to reach out and bring you back on here. Yes, feel free. I'd love to. <laughs> well, there you have it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of From Urban to Ag. More information and additional resources from today's episode can be found on my website, www.fromurbantoag.com. If you have any questions or comments about information presented in this episode, please get in touch via the contact tab on my website. If you enjoyed this episode and don't want to miss the next one, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, have a great day.